Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. And welcome back to the Evoking History Podcast. This week, I'm joined by my good friend, Jason Herbert, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Minnesota. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm good. I just uh, I got a runny nose here. I just made uh, I just made a whole bunch of gumbo, and I thought, well, it's it's hot down here in Florida, which is where I live. So let's let's make some really hot food, which made no sense at all. But hopefully it has, that won't hurt the podcast too much. I'm sure it won't. And it has been way too long since I've had some good gumbo. As I sit here in mild Milwaukee. <laughs> no, we try to do our best around here. Every so often, I get to, I get in the mood of uh, of making something, and I had no idea what I was going to make for myself and my boys tonight. So gumbo just felt right. So yeah, no, I I, I could probably eat gumbo a lot more than I need to. Um, so I, I completely understand that, especially if I was close to the actual ocean where I could get fresh seafood. Sure. Yeah. You know, my uh, my mom, you know, I grew up in Louisiana. We moved down to Louisiana when I was three, down to Brobridge, Louisiana. So I grew up, um, my last name, Herbert, obviously, but I grew up hearing my name is Bear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, growing up down there and really speaking Cajun French from a very early age. It wasn't my first language, but very close second language, at least for a long time. And, um, but my mom is like deathly allergic to like shellfish, which is not good when you're right in the middle of the craw- quite literally the crawfish capital of the world, right? It, it so, is not. Yeah, so I ended up making that, and I just don't like the way that like you know I was in a I don't know how to make how to cook small food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always have to cook in big batches, and like shrimp doesn't really hold well as a as like a leftover kind of thing. It's a thing where you want to eat it all then or toss it. Uh, so I end up not make, not putting any into mine. Mine just tends to be like andouille sausage and chicken, and then um, and then you know lots of roux. Tonight I smoked my roux in the in my new smoker for the first time, and that came out really really well. So oh, I bet it did. That's an interesting parallel um, because I also lived in Louisiana for a while in my youth. We lived in New Iberia, mm-hmm. and I don't really have any memories of it outside of like the pictures because I was so young. But I can like there's. We have pictures of our bathtub down there just filled with crawfish because we were going to do a boil and that kind of thing. And so I, I always have an affinity for Louisiana. If I ever head back down south, I would, wouldn't mind winding up there. Yeah, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't have a real solid identity. People always say, oh, I'm from here or I'm from here or whatever. And really, I claim as home both Kentucky and Louisiana, right? Because when I was born in Kentucky, really spent the most of my childhood there. But um, when we moved down there to, when I was three, stayed there till, till the time we were eight. So only about five years, but five very sh- long years when you're a child, really kind of yeah. getting my earliest memories are of Louisiana. Um, so in a lot of ways, it kind of grounds my experience. And quite frankly, like, you know, it really actually tied me to Kentucky that much more. 
Um, those of you who are listening right now don't see this, but I'm quite literally wearing a Kentucky shirt uh, at this very moment. And, you know, one of the things that you try to do in any situation and really going from a young age is to define yourself. And oftentimes you're trying to define yourself as somewhat different. Right. Yeah. Uh, and as a child growing up in the in the, just outside the sugar sugar fields in uh, Bro British, um, what made me different was that I was from Kentucky. So it really kind of drew me more into that growing up watching uh, Joe B. Hall's University of Kentucky basketball teams with Kenny Walker and Melvin Turpin and all those guys, you know, uh, I was like, no, I'm not from here. I'm from Kentucky. Um, but then as you grow older, you really start to embrace all these different, you know, different pieces of your childhood. And um, Louisiana's part of that, you know? Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, I completely agree with that. We moved around quite a bit when I was young. And like I said, I don't remember lots of it, but just the fact that I was from Kentucky really kind of solidified. And I have a similar story about the or feeling towards the University of Kentucky basketball team, that's really the only sports fandom that I still have, mm. um, you know, is, is that team. And despite the fact that I think my uncle went to, to UK, but nobody in my family certainly did, uh, at least not the immediate family. So uh, it is very interesting how we form these associations. And I think you're right. They are part of our identity formation. Yeah, certainly. Right. Especially with the Kentucky basketball thing. You know, I was thinking about that earlier tonight. Um, just about, I was I've kind of always been amazed that no one's ever run against Mitch McConnell on the basis that Mitch McConnell is a University of Louisville basketball fan, right? <laughs> yeah, I keep for real. thinking, they're like, why does no one exploit this inherent weakness? Um, you know, when I moved to Kansas uh, back in 2010, uh, Kansas is a great basketball state. You've got three really passionate fan bases Kansas, uh, Kansas State to, to a lesser degree, and also Wichita State. Um, but I never understood why 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 the University of Kansas uh, allowed other fan bases to be in the state. Uh, yeah, we've got Louisville back in Kentucky, but they really only about half the city uh, yeah. is Louisville fans. Um, and then everyone else is Kentucky fans. And maybe if you're from Murray, you're a Murray State fan or um, – if you're from someplace else, um, maybe you're an Eastern Kentucky University fan, or maybe you're a you know a, a hilltop or up in Bowling Green, sure. mm-hmm. but you're really kind of those at a second position. You know the exactly. expectation, at least where I was from, even though I'm from Murray, Kentucky, a small little hamlet in Western Kentucky. You know, uh, and we've got a terrific university there. It's a beautiful little town uh, that still has a you know, Robert E. Lee statue uh, that we're trying to get rid of right now. Um, but it was always like, okay, you could be a Murray State fan so long as you understand that you're a Kentucky fan first, right? And being from Kentucky, you know, I never went to the University of Kentucky. Um, and I, as I got older, I really started to question, I'm like, why do I love this program so much? And the reality was this. In a state like Kentucky, where we are often the butt of jokes about any number of things, Mm-hmm. We can look back and say we do three things well, right? We do bourbon, we do basketball, and we do horse races. You know, exactly. and I didn't drink bourbon growing up because I was a kid, and we were too poor to get into horse racing. So basketball it was, you know, um, and that was always the thing. I just uh, I remember my uh, <laughs> I remember that when my great grandmother died. Uh, we went to her funeral, and the pastor said three things. He said, 
Uh, he, Granny would have wanted you to know Jesus. She loved her wildcats and loved Jesus again, just for safe measure. And right. my, I remember my brother making everybody mad because he showed up wearing a University of Louisville shirt. And everybody there was like, oh, what is he doing? He, they know she wouldn't <laughs> like that. He's just doing it for attention. He just wants to be different, you know. So uh, they weren't mad that the shirt had no sleeves. It was the fact that it was a Louisville shirt. But uh, I digress. Uh, anybody who's listening that knows anything about the South or identity knows how finicky and fickle uh, identity politics can be. But um, certainly whenever I think about home, I'm always going to think about Kentucky basketball. You know? Yeah. Yeah, me too, if for no other reason than so many of my family are, are much more dyed in the, the wool, um, as they say, fans. And watch when I go in and visit my aunt, uh, if it's basketball season, chances are we're going to watch a, a basketball game. And she's pretty mild-tempered, but man, uh, when those games are on, you can expect to hear a cuss if they're not playing well. Well, you know, the, there's an interesting thing about Kentucky that I think maybe I've only seen with maybe Texans, but I don't even know that they're like this either, which is that, and you know this because you live outside the state, but I often, especially if I'm going to like, I live down here in South Florida, so if I go to Walt Disney World or someplace like that, I will often wear a Kentucky shirt or I'll wear my I Still Hate Leitner shirt. And I do this knowing that if I wear a shirt that identifies me as from Kentucky, other Kentuckians, whether I've ever met them or not, are going to reach out to me and come say hi, right? Yes. Whether they're from Pikeville, whether they're from Paducah or Elizabethtown, right? They're going to reach out like, where are you from? And blah, 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 and go cats and all these all these different things. And I've been with other friends. I've been with, uh, uh, you know, out and about. And they're always shocked at this. And I call it bluegrass nationalism, this idea that there is a kinship amongst Kentuckians outside the state to where we will actively seek one another out. I've never seen that happen before. I don't see my friends wearing a Texas shirt and have other Texans approach them like we do in Kentucky. I don't know of any other state that does this, but there is this really unique affection, this affinity for understanding that you are from the bluegrass. And no matter what your politics are, no matter what your religion is or anything like that, outside, Outside the state borders, you are still family in this really interesting way. Certainly, if you're if you're bonded by basketball, because if I see a guy wearing a Louisville shirt, I don't know that I'm going to go talk to him. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that guy's a traitor. So yeah, and it's all fine and good, but it's you know I'll go tease him a little bit. There you go. Well, see, that's an interesting point because the only time I see it is. People I know from Alabama, but that falls along the divide whether they're an Alabama or an Auburn fan. Yeah. And so it's it's usually if they're if they are both Alabama fans, they see somebody wearing Alabama merchandise, they might give them a roll tide or something, but they don't really talk to them. But if they're, you know, an Auburn fan, then they'll do the roll tide or War Eagle, and they'll actually have a go at it over the rivalry, not necessarily solidarity with their other fellow sure, fans. Yeah. Yeah, and, and great, great, you know, great, great traditions. No matter where, whether you're in Ohio State or you know, Ohio State and Michigan fans are going to go sure. see each other out, right? Yeah. Um, I do appreciate the Auburn, uh, the Auburn Alabama dynamic because that's a, one of the great, one of the great things in sports. So, got it up. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, your education and the type of history that you do. Um, sure. You already mentioned that you moved off to Kansas. I believe that was for <laughs> graduate school in 2010. Uh, I did. Yeah. I am, as you said, currently pursuing my, my PhD in American history at the University of Minnesota. And how the heck I got to this particular 
spot is kind of it's kind of a crazy story. I, I brought up Murray State earlier, and I'm afraid that every time I start talking about Kentucky, the accent's going to slip. I've done the worst. I've done the, the best job <laughs> I can to hide it. But every time this I start, this is talking, a safe place for Kentucky like, accents, you know, my brother. Oh yeah, you know, it's, I'm talking to you. It's like just talking about how. So I was an extremely average kid uh, coming out of high school. I was a bright kid, you know, a very stereotypical bright kid who didn't like to do his work kind of thing. Same kind of as an educator, just drives you nuts because you're just like, oh, come on, man, just just try. Um, so I promptly went into Murray State University because they were accepting anybody in 1995 and flunked out twice. It takes a lot of work to flunk out of a college twice, but I did it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And it always bothered me. I went on, I uh, worked at a, ended up moving to Florida as a young guy in my early 20s and kind of living down there. It always bothered me. I was in the mortgage business back in 2008, and that 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 whole thing happened. And my wife at the time said, you know, you're not happy. Why, why don't you just go back to school? It always bothered you. You never finished. So I did. I applied to Tallahassee Community College. Uh, we were living in Tallahassee at the time. And they graciously took a chance. You know, I came in with like a 1.7 GPA or something like that, you know. And it was, um, I was really scared to death. I was absolutely terrified. I was a 32-year-old guy sitting in a class full of 18, 19-year-old students, really terrified that I wasn't going to fit in or anything like that. And, you know, the amazing thing is, is like, not only did I fit in, I ended up making a lot of friends there, guys who I've been to their wedding. Actually, a friend of mine I met at Tallahassee Community College had a child today, you know, which was a cool thing. So I went to TCC, retook all the classes I took at Murray State to bring my GPA up, you know, and did that. And then I, once I finished with my associates, by the way, TCC, no matter what it is that I do, that, that community college degree, that AA I got from T, from TCC, from Tallahassee Community College, will probably be the single most prestigious thing I think I ever hold because I was absolutely terrified and they gave me a shot. I am, there's just no bigger fan of community colleges uh, than I am. I the, can't speak highly enough to them. Finished there and then transferred into Florida State University for a semester, for a summer semester. The idea was I was going to finish my uh, bachelor's degree at Florida State and really loved FSU and still do. I've got friends on the faculty there. It's an amazing university. Uh, I just love them to death. But my uh, ex-wife's job took us off to Kansas, so I ended up having to transfer out to Wichita State. Small, smallish school out in uh, South Central Kansas. I can't speak highly enough about how amazing the people of Kansas actually are. Wichita itself is just a real diamond. I don't know that people will ever appreciate the city for what it is, but it's it's really a wonderful place. I finished up my master, my bachelor's and my master's at Wichita State, and then was a you know went through the recruitment process and was fortunate enough to get into several several really terrific universities. And ended up choosing Minnesota, mostly because I think I wanted to freeze my tail off while working. Uh, you know, it's, oh my gosh, if you're from the south, if you're from Kentucky and Louisiana uh, and Florida, uh, and you go experience negative 30 for the first time, that is a that is a whirlwind. But I also always had my eye back on Florida. I wanted to end up back in Florida. I started to focus in when I was at Wichita State on Indigenous history. I was actually originally interested in doing the history of the Troubles in Northern Ireland okay. uh, when I was at uh, TCC and then Florida State, but they didn't really have anything there at Wichita. So I was like, well, I can do any kind of history. I, I just like history. Uh, they've got some stuff on Native Americans. I'll, I'll learn what I can here and wrote a couple papers and then we're off to the races. And that was the reason why I chose uh, University of Minnesota. It's the oldest indigenous studies program in the world. 
uh, and really has some phenomenal faculty there and scholars in Minnesota. And I thought it would be different. Minneapolis itself is a really terrific uh, city. The Twin Cities are amazing. And I'm glad that I went. A couple of years later, I finished up my, my doctoral coursework, and now I'm just in the midst of writing my dissertation at the moment, uh, which looks at the introduction of cattle into indigenous Florida and how this one unassuming animal really kind of changed the culture of Florida, its environment, its ecology, the political, st uh, political structures of Florida. You know, and it's, it's this amazing story because not a lot of people think about Florida as this cattle producing state, but it is. It's uh, one of the largest cattle producing states uh, in, the, uh, in the country, the largest or the oldest cattle producing state uh, in the country. And the Seminole tribe of Florida currently possesses the uh, uh, about 10,000 head of cattle. They're the fourth largest in the state. They're the 12th largest in the country. They're a massive player, a big player in the in the industry. And more than that, there is a longstanding tradition among Seminole Indians here in Florida of cattle husbandry, of cattle ranching. It is very key to uh, native identity here in Florida. So I'm hoping to tell a little bit of that story, if I can, and kind of amplify a lot of the voices that are found in the archives to essentially get at this essential truth that I think a lot of people miss, which is that in North America, the first cowboys were Indians. And more specifically, they were Florida Indians. And uh, that tradition amongst Seminoles goes back hundreds of years. So trying to tell that story as best I can and do honor to the people who came before us. Well, I'm looking forward to it, seeing it when it finally is done and, and reaches publication. And, and there was a whole lot there that I, I kind of want to unpack. Sure. You know, I, I one thing that really interests me, and let me preface this before I actually ask you a question. One thing that sure. really interests me about your dissertation is that it's really kind of sitting at a nexus of overlapping historiographies that are understudied, in my opinion, because not only do you have indigenous history, which is criminally understudied, but you also have environmental and animal histories, which are kind of just blossoming into their own thing, really. Mm -hmm. The last part of that overlap of the Venn diagram of your dissertation is Florida, especially early America, Florida, which is often left out in survey courses because it's not part of the, the 13 colonies and our, the way that we teach Anglo history from the, the East Coast westward. Florida is often left out of that. So just were you intentionally when you started honing in on indigenous history? Did you still have your eye towards Florida then, or was that something that came along at a later date? It was always with the idea of returning to Florida. My two little boys lived in Florida. I have an affinity for Florida. Mostly there's just Jimmy Buffett running through my veins. Um, so I always thought that I wanted to return to Florida. A big reason why I wanted to, to go to Minnesota was to kind of kind of go outside the state to come back, if you will. Sure. Um, so there was always – I was interested in southeastern Indian history – uh, I wrote a little bit about Creeks, Choctaw, Cherokee as I was going through my bachelor, master's program, things like that. But I came to realize that there wasn't a whole lot comparatively written about the Seminole tribe of Florida. So I decided that what interested me was to know the people who lived here, uh, lived and live here now, today, who also share a love of the same place that I do, right? Sure. And as as a result, the, the cow thing just came out as an absolute accident. I wrote a paper, actually, that I presented where I met you, which is at the Rocky Mountain Interdisciplinary History Conference years ago, I think 2013. 
you know, I wrote like um, a uh, like um, a disease history of the war and kind of of, of the Second Seminole War. Cattle played into that, and Elizabeth Finn said, "Hey, you should really kind of take this and run with it." And I kind of did. And uh, Catherine Gerbner, who's at the University of Minnesota, an absolutely brilliant professor, really encouraged me. I was taking an Atlantic history course with her, reading a lot of Alfred Crosby, uh, Eleanor G.K. Melville, a lot of Atlantic uh, environmental histories, and started to realize, well, well, wait a second, where is Florida in all of this? Because if you look at a map, right, here's the amazing thing about Florida. Florida is two places at once. It is the southeastern North America, but it's also the greater Atlantic, the greater Caribbean, the greater Atlantic, right? It's this nexus of places. It's a true borderland, right? And if you might want to consider my own work, this uh, front, this borderland of like uh, uh, environmental work, indigenous work, uh, Atlantic uh, history, and so forth, uh, Florida itself is the very, very real manifestation of that. And you're absolutely right, right? Florida history doesn't get covered a lot. Uh, most recently, you're probably familiar with the 1619 project that came out and really important work that really spoke to the history of black slavery in the United States, right? And really, really important. But the thing that, that they left out was the fact that enslaved Africans were brought to, were brought to North America well before then, right? That the, that, that experience goes back 100 years more. Right. When you start to see landings in Florida, invasions of Florida, probably more a uh, uh, better word for it, beginning, you know, in 1513, 1521, and then going all the way through the absolutely horrible entradas of Spanish conquistadors um, like Hernando de Soto and so forth. Right. And Africans, enslaved Africans, were part of this history and well before any Anglo-centered story of North America. We have to understand that. We have to be able to obviously understand first and foremost the indigenous history mm -hmm. of North America, of the United States, but also we've got to understand the Spanish history of this. And right, you know, in, in, in the minds I have a lot of folks, I think the way it was always taught to me is we didn't really hear Spain as a player uh, until we talked about Texas and California and things like that. Yeah, Even exactly. though contributions uh, in the American Revolution, but even before then, right? And when I hear folks, you know, I've had students before tell me, you know, they didn't, you know, uh, they would speak Spanish, and then people in Florida would, people in Florida would would, uh, would would kind of cast an eye at them. I was like, look, those people aren't recognizing. We are in La Florida, right? We are, not, we are in indigenous space, right? But to not recognize that Spain also played a role here, right, is, uh, is a real shame. So we're trying to, we're trying to, interject that history into the United States, because there's all these questions about the 13 colonies and things like that. But what about Florida, right? What about the two colonies here, East and West Florida? Why did they not choose to go along with the American Revolution, if you're going to tell that American Revolution story? What does this place mean? What does it mean that neither this whole idea of, of a Spanish Florida that really doesn't exist? Because when you go back and look at, at the records here, you see Spain was really centered in St. Augustine, and Pensacola, and maybe a smattering of little missions here and there. But there was no Spanish Florida. Spain never controlled Florida. Florida was indigenous space solely. That's where the power was. And I really want to tell those stories, right? Because those stories, those stories are the stories of the ancestors of tribal members of the Seminole tribe of Florida today. Uh, and I hope to be able to kind of amplify in my own work some of, that, some of those stories. 
No, I, I certainly think you will. I mean, those are all incredibly good points. Uh, you know, just and I have a a problem with the way that a lot of American history is taught, and I understand why it's been that way for decades. But I do like to see the change in decentering the thirteen colonies, the the Anglo perception of manifest destiny, and all this, and telling these stories of the other empires that were at play in North America before we became a thing. And to your point about the long history of exporting African peoples, kidnapping them, and bringing them over. So I think that that is very important too. Roughly, where does your story and your dissertation begin? Well, if you're going to tell the story of native Florida, it begins in the beginning. And the, the, the way I can tell you this is if you talk to Seminole tribal members today, they'll say, we have always been here. Right. right? And that causes, you know, Juliana Barr wrote this great article in the William Mary Quarterly a couple of years ago, talking about there's no such thing as prehistory. Michael Whitkin, who's a professor at Michigan, really wrote this really great piece a few years earlier than that, talking about the ways to envision American history as like the, the history of a place, right? And that's kind of what I tried to do, is tell the history of a place and people and animals that lived upon it, right? But if you're going to tell the story, you, you got to go to the beginning. And the beginning is, the beginning is always. It's always been here. I don't, I don't have an exact year. I like to think about there was this world here in Florida, and this is how people lived. Um, but certainly you've got to start the story before the Spanish arrive, right? If history is the study of change over time, what is Florida in 1512, right? What is Florida in 500, right? And I think we can probably start, realistically start the story somewhere in the 15, early 1500s before the Spanish arrived to establish uh, a way of life. But when you come down to the ideas as far as like who gets to be here, these stories about like belonging and rights, uh, there's a very simple truth, which is that Native people have always been in Florida. The Seminole Tribe of Florida has always been here. Uh, and that's, again, something that I try to, at least in my own work, reveal through uh, a cow's eyes in a lot of this dissertation. Yes, of course. I also wonder, mm -hmm. with just the geography of Florida and so much oceanfront, if you're going to also do pull a little bit from... Uh, Lippmann's book, Saltwater Frontiers, and talk about that contested space of the border before it's even on land. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, you know, Saltwater Frontiers is a great book, right? And absolutely, you can't talk about the lands of Florida without talking about the waters of Florida. This is, I mean, really, how do we define what Florida is? We know that Native people were using these, these waterways, both in and outside the peninsula, to uh, maintain communication with the world. Uh, Alejandro Dubkovsky's uh, Informed Power really spells this out really, really well, right? And there are other books uh, as well. Jason Uremko's book uh, kind of talks about this indigenous passages to Cuba. You know, Native people of England have been going back and forth from Florida to Cuba to the Bahamas and elsewhere uh, with these water spaces. So, yeah, the defense of Florida becomes key in uh, mm my work and how cattle actually factor into that. I think that that is another important part here because usually, and I'm not a scholar of indigenous history, but normally when I think about, and I think the way that it's taught in surveys, again, not to harp on that point, but just that when we talk about indigenous animal use, it's always about the adaptation of the horse you know, and, and the Comanche Empire and, and things of that nature. So centering this on cattle, I think, is something that 
until I saw you start talking about it hadn't really ever occurred to me. Do you want to maybe talk about that process very briefly? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great. Um, certainly, right? The horse, when we talk about European animals and uh, and, their, and, and native adaptations of those animals, the horse is just a huge uh, as, aspect of that story, right? Uh, Pekahim Alinum's book, uh, Comanche Empire, really spells this out. And many, many tribes uh, and native peoples have really adopted this animal as, cult, as, as integral to their culture. And that's a really important story, right? And it, it remains so in the Southeast as well, right? Horses all throughout the Southeast uh, as well. But these cattle are different. And, you know, just like with these things like guns and so forth that were really tools of the colonizer to colonize native peoples, so too were cattle, right? Um, there's a great, great book called Cattle Colonialism by John Ryan Fisher that looks at Hawaii and California and essentially says that, like, look, uh, these Spaniards came in, they wanted to use these mission systems to convert to convert the local populace to Catholicism and make them good, upstanding Spanish citizens. And part of this idea was to have them working with uh, cattle and horses and agriculture and things like that, all these European ideas. It's an important thing. And again, uh, when you look here in Florida, you see the record here, and it's just like there are thousands. What, what ends up happening is, is these Spanish missions get established in the 15 and 1600s. And they kind of sit there, and along with the Spanish missions are the Spanish ranches that really help to underwrite the Spanish colonial effort in Florida, right? It's largely native labor that's doing, that's right, underwriting the, the, the colonial mission in Florida. And mind you, Spain, like England, never quite understands what Florida is. Nobody quite, they don't quite understand Florida. Um, but these cattle are important to their colonial attempts. And what ends up happening is you have these series of rebellions amongst the Tamuqua and the Appalachian and so forth. And then later a series of Creek, Creek Indian raids into, into these lands that largely destroy those ranches and missions, you know? And the result of that is that you end up having tens of thousands uh, of, of feral cattle roaming throughout Florida, throughout uh, the Florida highlands on the Alachua Plains. That's a story that I want to, want to tell because it's like, here's all these animals. What are they? What, wild? We have wild cows? What? And it's very, it's a very specific animal. It's not just any cow. It's this one little wiry cow we call a criollo cattle. It's this wiry little Andalusian thing that just won't die like everything else in Florida does. All these other European animals, you bring sheep into Florida, they die on mass so these little cattle they, they survive they're hardy they're tough and they're a really really interesting story to tell yeah really uh, you know and uh, we often hear stories coming out of florida in the modern day talking about invasive animal species and everything so this is kind of a a story of that centuries ago and the impact that they would have on the environment as especially as a herd animal and one that lives off of grass and other plants. So is that going to factor in? I mean, I don't know. I, well, I don't know the structure of, of your story. You, you look at Florida in 2020, it's a story of uh, invasion by exotic destructive pests, right? Right. Yeah. Pythons and lionfish and iguanas and any number of uh, other things swimming or crawling around here in Florida. 
Um, and those are very real threats to Florida's ecosystem. You know, here in Florida, we've got the Everglades, which is the most threatened ecosystem in the world. It's the only ecosystem like it in the world. Uh, and these invasive species are a real threat to the integrity of the Everglades that we know of today, especially when we talk about like pythons and what they're doing. They're just, just destroying the fur-bearing mammal population in Florida. That said, you know, what happens if we start to think about like these animals like that we accept and know like horses and cattle, hogs, and stop thinking of them as just as like feral or domesticates, but actually understand that what they are is invasive species, right? Mm -hmm. How does this change how we tell this story? And the reality is, is when you have an invasive species, the ecosystem, right, in which they invade has to change. It undergoes new challenges. It's new obstacles it's got to overcome. And then it also has the animals themselves have to respond to these, these things. And then also, you know, the people who live here have to respond. So you've got to do, deal with that in a various number of ways. So there are a lot of parallels between then and now. Sure, sure. Certainly. And an, another thing about what you're talking about and how your project is is sounding to me, I guess I should say, in an in articulate way, is that it is t- going to talk about the, these various empires and interconnections between them. This is not a, necessarily a, for lack of a better term, landlocked story or a story of one group, even though it is privileging the Native American voices. It's talking about just, you, you've already mentioned it, the, the travel from native Florida to Cuba and this part of a greater Caribbean and greater Atlantic world. And something, again, I don't think people often think about. Again, I think they think of colonial history as, as specifically a European thing, um, or maybe a French thing if they think about the Seven Years' War or something of that nature. But there are other powers at play here, and often it is the influence of the indigenous and how they are forcing these European powers to respond to them that is overlooked. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, because of Florida's unique position here. Um, native people in Florida are selling these animals to Cuba specifically, but also to the Bahamas, right? Uh, and receiving from them goods in which they can do, use to further their own interests, oftentimes in the defense of Florida, when we start talking about the mid-19th century and things like that. So this really becomes not just a Florida history, but really a larger Atlantic story as well. Florida is just this... It's this borderland story, not just between native peoples uh, and uh, and Europeans, but between native peoples and between one native uh, faction and uh, another, right? Between one native community and another. So, and cattle play prominently into this. They're just all over the story. And if we kind of use these animals as a vehicle to kind of shift around, looking left and right, north and south, we can kind of see all these things going on. So cattle really become the, uh, the, the, uh, the vehicle that I use to, uh, to try to tell these stories. Excellent. It sounds amazing, Jason. It really does. I really look forward to, to reading it and, and synthesizing it once it comes out. Thank you for talking about it. Yeah. What are, are some of the other things that you've been doing? You said that, you know, once you got past the coursework stage that you moved back down to Florida, what have you been doing in the interim? Working my tail off. So I, I moved down to Florida. I ended up taking a job uh, at a public high school down in uh, Highlands County, Florida, for a couple of years. And then for the last year, I taught at an independent school here you know, on the coast, on the Treasure Coast in Florida. So teaching largely high school students, but the last year, also eighth grade students at the secondary level uh, here at the secondary level. And 
It was a real challenge. There were a lot of ups uh, to it and a few downs as well, you know, especially in Highlands County, where you're talking about one of the poorest counties in the state. There's just no resources. Really a lot of difficult challenges to, as an educator, to overcome when, when you're talking about uh, that particular situation. But enjoying the process overall, I felt like going out and being able to teach high school over the last three years was a great way to see how it is, how history is taught, what educators at this level are having to overcome. I can tell you that high school history teachers are just working their tails off. Teaching high schools way harder than teaching a college level course. So I'll tell you that. And how much the how much the educators absolutely uh, care for the welfare of the students in front of them. That is, you don't get to teach without having an absolute love of the uh, of the people in front of you. So I've been doing that. Uh, and then uh, recently I left uh, the Pine School, where I most recently was, and have accepted a position with the Seminole Tribe of Florida as uh, uh, an ethnographer for them. So writing uh, the tribal history from, from hopefully from the tribe's perspective. That's what I'm trying to do for them. Excellent. I do want to dive into that because that sounds very fascinating. But I want to spend a little bit more time about talking about your secondary education experience that are teaching it. Because two weeks ago, I had Ambar Rodriguez on who teaches in the secondary school system in California. And we talked about some of the challenges that she faced, especially teaching in an area that is a lot of immigrant families and farm workers and things of that nature. So one of the things that she said that really struck with me was, you know, she had a student who would come in and who was responsible for for working in the fields. And that was a, the primary source of the family's income. If you fell asleep in class that day, what do you do? Teaching the history is important, but also if this student also has to work and is the primary source of income for his family, where do, how do you juggle that? And I don't know if you face similar situations or not, but I, I just wondered if you could share your thoughts on some of these struggles that you said that make it so much more difficult, especially when you have administration tell, trying to dictate your uh, curriculum to you and not really having an understanding of history. Yeah, well, certainly, right? So the demographics of Highlands County, Florida was about a third white, third African-American, and third Latino, right? Uh, Mexican-American largely. Many uh, migrant workers uh, there as well, children migrant workers and so forth. And yeah, that, that was a reality. I mean, that's just a reality when you have students come in and you could just tell they're dog tired. And their reality, their set of priorities is different. They're, they're trying to establish themselves here. And the first as a secondary educator, the first your first goal has got to be to care for understand that history is very, very important, but the first priority is the welfare of the child in front of you. And they are children. They look more and more like adults every single day in front of you. But a 16-year-old uh, student is still a child. A 12, 13-year-old student is still a child. And that um, is a difficult time period to get through. We can, yeah. we can talk about the changes and things like that. And that's true. But also trying to juggle... Any number of things come dealing with racism around you because of your skin color or your uh, your ethnicity to broken homes or any number of things you can have. And this this doesn't just happen with with poor counties either. Uh, you can see those in any kind of in wealthy schools as well. You're just a, as an educator, you're you're watching out to make sure that the, the, the student in front of you is getting the love and affection and the care that he or she needs. Uh, at all times. That's my first goal as an educator on that regard. Uh, it's just like if the kids know that I love them, right? 
Mm -hmm. They don't trust me. And if they trust me, then maybe they'll learn something. That that was a big, big understanding. And I big thing I had to come to understand was the prioritization of where school laid in for some of the students. Because, you know, as us academics, we chose this kind of work. We obviously think it's important. They're not always going to do so. And frankly, sometimes it's it's real, you know, it's it's a well-earned thing. I had students who, you know, their parent, their families depended upon them to provide labor either in the field or childcare or something along those lines. And you've got to be able to kind of meet them halfway in a lot of ways. So there was that. And then as far as the uh, standards go, I never paid attention to those. Uh, not one bit. I, I looked at them the first day and probably, probably never thought of them. And there was a very good reason for that. And that's because I'm trained as an educator. Right. I'm right. As a historian, I understood that if I just if I tried to worry about someone else's standards about how to teach, the information wouldn't get taught. Right. And I just thought that I am a professional at this. I've been trained. I know the material. Go teach it. Go teach American history. Go teach it. How, what the, and the reality is, when I looked at the standards, I would see that all of these things in front of me were things that I was going to cover uh, anyway. Right. These right. are very large, big, big picture ideas and so forth, right? But because I wasn't looking at the textbook to find out the information on them, I could really spend much more time trying to devise ways in which students could learn. Um, so I didn't really worry too much about standards or anything along, along those lines. And the result was I told the students, I'm like, just follow me, right? The result was that uh, we had significant gains. And I'm not a big believer in standardized testing and things like that. But off the test that we did have, the state required these tests to be taken, we show, my classes showed tremendous increases from previous years. So whether they learned anything or not based on those tests, I don't know. What I can tell you is based on what I judge, right, as the student's learning, which is this. How are the quality of questions that the students were asking me, right? Because uh, at the end, the beginning of the year, it's often, when did this happen? What does this mean? Blah, 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 right? Yeah. By the end of the year, if they're asking me, well, why or how or what if, right? If they're asking you those kinds of questions and they start to think critically about the material in front of them based upon the things that we've taught to them, then we know they're learning, right? I, you have a bad day on a test. Maybe you're not a, 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 a good test taker. Maybe you, that doesn't hit your strategies or anything like that. You know, you could have a bad day. It's on a daily basis, are you coming in and engaging? Do I hear you questioning in front of me? Are you, you, will you, will you argue with me? I want you to come and express your opinion. Number one rule in my class is always don't be afraid to be wrong, right? Yeah. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Uh, and that's a hard, that's a hard thing to do, right? Uh, and that's a thing that, you know, realistically to be a successful, hopefully a successful adult, which is what we're trying to model. It's like, you've really kind of got to adopt that mindset as your own say, I, I think this is the right way to go. I'm just going to put it out there, right? Whether you're in high school or a university or just in a relationship or any number of things, right? It's just like, I've got to be able to trust my instinct and put these ideas out there. Yeah. And I think that is one of the hardest things for somebody teaching at any level is getting the students to, A, creating a space where it's safe to be wrong. Because um, we've probably both been in classrooms with um, teachers or professors who would punish you for being wrong. Well, that's a stupid question. Sure. Are you paying attention and that kind of thing? But creating that safe space, because that's where the learning occurs. You it know, does. if you if you have a, I've been wrong in especially at the graduate level in my interpretation of things plenty of times that I've never been afraid to just 
say what I thought or what I saw in, in the reading and then be corrected. Oh, OK, cool. Now I know. Uh, whereas if you sit there silently and don't say anything for fear of sounding stupid or being punished, then you're never going to get that correction and really learn. You're still going to have the, the same old, same old uh, mentality. Yeah, you really want to create a safe space for the students. Um, and I know the ideas of safe spaces sometimes get hit you know, by some people as this negative thing, but absolutely not, right? The one word, if you come sit in a class of mine is with, with, the, with my uh, high school students or my elementary students, pardon me, my middle school students, you're going to hear me say throughout the, throughout the day, I love you guys, right? This is yeah. great. I love it. I love what you guys are doing. Love it, love it, love it, right? Even if they're wrong, right? Uh, on a theme, right? Because um, I want them to know that their thoughts are welcome, right? They are welcome. That this is a place where they can be wrong. It's like, hey, man, if you're in class, be wrong. Be wrong in class. Be right on test day, right, or whatever. Um, so that's um, that's a really important thing to me. And that, and frankly, as scholars, right, as you go through the system, um, and but go through uh, high school. Uh, college, graduate school, and then even as, an, as a practicing academic, ladies and gentlemen, you still have the ability to change your mind. You, you yes. can reserve that right, okay? And you can, be, you can have a position and then change it the next year. You can change it. That's what we call learning, okay? The, the learning doesn't stop in class, exactly. right? I can tell you I've had thoughts as I entered graduate school that changed that I have completely different thoughts now. And... I also have thoughts that I went into graduate school thinking, well, I don't know about this. And then, yeah, they were solidified. That's how we learn and think about things. I mean, that's just the process. And I can tell you, sitting here today in 2020, that I'll have thoughts in my head that will probably change uh, significantly into 2030, 2040, and beyond. I mean, that's, I don't like this idea that what, one, that what you say one time determines who you are, or how you think the entirety of your life. I think that we need to be able to say, I had thoughts about this. I've changed my ideas and understand that's part of the experience of being a human being. You know, if you're not changing your opinion, you're, you're really not taking in the material around you, the, the influences of the world around you. I think, I think we really need to be able to say, Hey, I was wrong about that or I've changed my mind and be able to uh, in front of the people go, Oh, okay, cool. I understand why. I could not agree with you more on that because I think too often we privilege people who say that, you know, well, I've made consistency that I've always held this view. If you've always held the view, you've never critically assessed it. You've never taken in new information and revisited. You might, you can do that and still end up in sometimes the roughly the same space that you were before. But if you never challenge it and your only thing that you're saying is I've always been consistent on this issue, and that's always kind of a red flag to me. Yeah, sure, absolutely, right? You open yourself up. I, I don't try to take myself too seriously. I want to learn, and if someone pushes me and says, "Hello, to consider this," it's okay to say, "No, I never thought about that," and that changes my changes my thing. I think it's a good thing. I do too. I completely agree with you there. I, I before we move on to your current position with the, the Seminole Tribe, I, I want to ask you about your experience as an educator during the time of the pandemic, uh, because that has, I think, when historians of 100 years from now are looking back on this moment, it's going to be, you know, we're going to talk, they're going to talk about this in some of the same ways that we talk about the 1918 flu pandemic. And of course, things are not, this is not 1918, but just the way that this has affected American society. Um, so I would like to get your thoughts as somebody who is practicing 
in the public school system or even the private school system when this happened? Man, it would tell you, it was tough. It was really tough. I tell you this uh, now a month removed from teaching in high school. Uh, it was tough. We, we came back from spring break and never came back. So we had a couple of weeks where everybody's kind of watching to see what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, every single educator at the Pine School, which is where I was teaching, great school uh, for really talented, capable, uh, caring educators, um, had to devise on a fly a way to teach online. You know, I will tell you that I think the students adapted to it quicker than we did at first. Um but there were certainly challenges along the way, how to keep students engaged. It turned out where, you know, first couple, first, first three, four weeks, people were really engaged. This is neat and different and so forth. As that time wore on, people, you know, you're talking to children. Children are growing and learning and doing things. And their, their interest on the best day in class is going to waver, right? So how do you make these, how do you make these uh, changes, right? How do you adjust for that? And ultimately, I think, again, you take some of the pressure off yourself, say, look, this is a, a global pandemic. We're going to do the best we can. I tell, I tell us to my students, like, look, all your teachers, your parents, all of us, we're all doing the best we can. All right. So just handle it with a little grace. Understand that looks in history with an eighth grade uh, U.S. history class, they're going to take it again in 11th grade and they're going to take it again when they get to college. I'm going to teach them as best I can and trust that if I don't get to cover something, then that will get covered up next three years, you know. Uh, my biggest thing is to be a rock for the students in this time period, right? I will be here, you know, every day during class. And if you need yeah. me, I am here for you, right? That was the big thing. How do I tend to the students, right? How do I be a voice of reassurance to them uh, during a world during a time period in which no one is assured of anything? So that was my bigger concern. Sure. And maintaining that sense of normalcy, that makes a lot of sense. Or as much of it as you can, given the, the situation. So let's transition now to talking about your current position. Um, how did you come across this position and, and develop the relationship with the, the Seminole Tribe? Um, well, uh, I'm currently working for the Seminole Tribe of Florida to develop an ethnographic study, uh, essentially a, a tribal history of, of the tribes uh, in the Everglades uh, for some stuff that they're trying to do right now. Uh, and um, some members of the Historic Preservation Office had reached out to me uh, and asked me if they'd be interested in the position. And, of course, I was humbled and honored to even have that conversation. Uh, and then after a few conversations, uh, came on board, if you will. So, um, you know, for me, it's the highest honor I could be given. I'm not Native. Uh, I take that very seriously, the fact that I'm, I'm not Native and I'm writing Native history. Um, you know, you don't have to look far to see a lot of trauma inflicted, even by the most well-meaning of scholars uh, throughout time, uh, onto Native peoples. And I take that really seriously. My job is to amplify Native voices here in Florida. I am I'm really honored, right, to be able to be of service to the tribe. And that's how I consider myself. I am in service of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. It's a great honor to be here. Um, and I want to uh, I want to do right by the by the people who the indigenous people here in Florida. I just um, I'm very very touched and honored and humbled to be able to be able to to be of service to them that they would come to me and ask me to to do this because it's it's a great honor. Certainly so, certainly so. You actually have um, amongst the 
uh, both I would say academic Twitter and regular Twitter have, have carved out a space and something that is fantastic that I want to spend uh, our last few moments on. Sure. I have you. And that is historians at the movie. <laughs> sure. Hashtag HATM. Um, something that I have participated in in the past and something that I look forward to going back and following, even if I'm not able to watch the movie participate at the time. Uh, explain to that those listeners who don't know what that is. Okay, so historians of the movies. Uh, what it is, it's a it's a weekly weekly event in which historians and film lovers, movie lovers uh, around the world now get together every Sunday night to watch and live tweet a movie. Uh, and we get thousands of folks participating each week, and we'll, we pick out a new movie, and it's it's a lot of fun. And what we have done, this is, all happens via Twitter and usually via Netflix. What we've tried to do is, and I say we, this is the Kentucky in me coming out using the Imperial we, but what, what we try to do here is create a sense of community, again, that is fun, that is welcoming, that is kind and good and informative, if we can. Um, that I want. You know, it doesn't take much to get on Twitter to see that the whole world is falling apart, uh, to see any lower, any number of negative things being said about any number of people, either on Twitter or Facebook or anything else like that. Um, so what HATM does is it provides an outlet. Every Sunday night, you know where to find us. Movies almost always on Netflix. Um, we get together and we watch this movie. We watch and we laugh and we cry, we historicize. Right? But as I like to say, we do this as a community, right? We do this, you know, together. And that's that's what that's that's the beauty of it. it we're going now for almost two years solid now. Next month will be uh, two years that we started doing this. And it's it's kind of crazy because it was never designed to be a, a, a thing or anything like that. This has come, you know, I people kind of give me credit for creating this, but I, I really do give a lot of the credit to the people who continually come back every single week and either tweet along or get, get up the next day on Monday and read up, read the tweets or whatever, you know, for keeping this going, we are probably the longest running live tweet on the internet at this point in time. I'm not familiar with one who's longer. Maybe there is, but what keeps coming back to it is people coming back to it. It's not the movies. It's not, right? The movies are too varied and they're not always, their movies aren't always easy to watch. It's the community. It's the people who talk. It's people who come back, who share this very intimate time with one another, who get together. We sit on a couch that is 330 million people deep. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we, we put it all out there for anybody who wants to watch. And now, now we not only have historians at the movies in the United States, we've got Waitman Bjorn is, is running one in the UK, H-A-T-M uh, UK. And then uh, uh, with Joel Barnes uh, is running the one in Australia, H-A-T-M A-U-S, right? So we've got, uh, we've got the United States, uh, Britain, and, uh, and Australia. And essentially, I'm trying to re recapture all of the former British Empire. <laughs> I, I, I can, of course. But that's what we're doing, and it's been great. It's been, it's been really great. You know, this whole thing started off so so simple. I was literally, you know, when I came out, when I left Minnesota and moved down to Florida, one of the tough things was the fact that I had to leave my academic community behind. Mm -hmm. And that was really tough. You miss the engagements. You miss the workshops, the discussions you have with people. So I got really active on Twitter. And really what I was doing mostly was saving a bunch of turtles from the river. People came to know me as the turtle guy, right? Uh, and that's fine and good. There are worse things to be known as the guy who saves turtles. Like uh, that—that's okay. Nobody gets mad about that. 
Somebody gets mad about that, but this, somebody gets mad about anything, right? Yeah. Like, oh, that guy, you know, who right? <laughs> right. But you know, there's this long-running joke amongst historians and archaeologists. You know, archaeologists uh, get Harrison Ford; they get Indiana Jones. But historians, we get Benjamin Franklin Gates. We get we get Nicholas Cage. Yes. But I had seen that National Treasure was on Netflix. I thought kind of tweeted out one day, hey, we should all watch this together sometime. Said, okay, set it up. So I did, and we did. It was great and fun. I had a lot of had a lot of fun that first night. And I was like, okay, that was great. Thanks, everybody. Can figure well, we're, when are we doing it again? I guess we could do it next week. And then we did, and uh, and which we did Lincoln, and then we did Marie Antoinette, and then we did uh, Trading Places, and then we did Coco, and so on, so on, so on, right? And it's been this real, real big whirlwind uh, ever since then. This weekend, we're going to be doing uh, There Will Be Blood, and we're going to be doing the Hamilton uh, next week, and uh, the, the Five Bloods uh, the next day on July 5th. So we're coming up on two years now, and it's been a really big thing. Um, people have really told me how much they enjoy it. They watch it with their families. Uh, they watch movies for the first time. We did E.T. last week. And a bunch of people watching E.T. for the first time just because we set this up. That was cool. Yeah. And I know these folks now. They're friends. And I run into them at conferences. And it really breaks down barriers, um, gives people an opportunity to kind of talk about their own work when we talk about maybe a movie about the World, about World War II, like when we did Defiance or Inglorious Bastards or the Civil War or anything like that. It helps to expose other scholars to this whole other audience because the reality is this. If I write this dissertation in this book, and no matter how much people love cattle, if six people read it, I haven't done anything. But if I can tweet something out and start to start to shed a little light on any number of things, I can have a bigger effect. And that's been the cool part about what HATM has done. Um, it's served as a platform to introduce people to other scholarship. It serves as a platform to talk about things that matter. And most importantly, like I said, it has formed a community amongst people online. And I, I don't take that for granted. It really means the world to me. You know, sometimes I scoff at the, the use of the word community because, you know, prior to going back to academia, I I had several jobs, uh, usually corporate jobs that would use that, and it wasn't true. But the way that you're using it here and what you have helped create with historians at the movie is a true community. There have been several people that I have met uh, through historians at the movie you know one of the one of the great things and i don't know that it'll ever be the same after covid that i've really enjoyed about academia is going to conferences and meeting people like you said me and you met at a conference despite the fact that we're we are from the same geographic region <laughs> in kentucky and lived maybe 60 miles apart from each other that are roughly the same age i'm a few years older than you but we didn't meet until we were at a conference in colorado but <laughs> yeah <laughs> Despite that, you know, this is a true community. I have met people that I now consider friends through historians at the movie and through Twitter um, writ, writ large. And so I want to commend you for that because a lot of people do use that term and it's hollow. But when you say it and what you have with the historians at the movies is a real community. Thank you. It, it, it means a lot to me that people keep coming back. And you're absolutely right. These are these uh, made friend, friendships and uh, it's a really cool thing that we can use to, uh, you know, talk about things as well, right? People love movies, and people, I think, mostly like people like history. So if we can use those things to talk about any number of things that are going on, whether it's immigration or politics or war or sexuality or belonging or family, 
why not? And then maybe we just laugh the whole time too, right? Maybe we, maybe we get a good movie. Maybe we watch The Patriot and we think it's silly, right? Uh, yes. Well, you know, that's the great okay. thing about it. There, there is actual good historical deconstruction and other disciplines too, because we have sure. um, archaeologists and, and artists and English people and, and just multidisciplinary deconstruction. Yeah. yeah. And a bunch of fishery scientists get on board when we did Jaws one night, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it can be a lot of fun. We can bring a lot to the table, and hopefully, hopefully people, you know, at some point in time, people will probably get tired of it. I'm, you know, but for now, people really seem to, and as long as they enjoy it, if I can give this one little piece back and do this one little thing, then that makes me feel good. That's good. That's good enough. Amen, brother. Well, I've had you on here for about an hour, a little bit over actually, and I try to be cognizant of my guest's time because I'm. Almost everybody has something better to do than spend an hour with me talking. Um, so I want to thank you again, Jason. This was great. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your, your night to, to do this. But I want to give you a moment to talk about anything that you would like to promote, anything, your social media or any other initiatives that you have going on. Um, the floor is yours, sir. Yeah, uh, you know, thank, thank, you know, this was a great excuse to talk because we hadn't been on a chance to do this in a while. But no, if you're interested in historians of the movies, you know, find me on Twitter at, at Herbert History, or you can follow follow the hashtag hashtag HATM, um, and that's where you'll see more. And uh, if you follow me along, I'll try to point you to some other scholars doing some other work that I think is cool, right? And maybe you'll see some turtle pictures too. Indeed, you will. Indeed, you will. Well, thank you again, Jason. It was a pleasure, and thank you for listening to the Evoking History podcast.